Welcome to the Scientific Method Podcast. I'm Angela Chen, and I'm Mitch Fogelson. We are two PhD students at Carnegie Mellon University, studying topics related to neuroscience, robotics, and AI. We are curious and impressed with how researchers are able to come up with quality questions and clever experiments to discover the answers. Each week, we have conversations with graduate students to discuss their research process to gain insights to improve our academic pursuits. If you're interested in research, graduate school, or science in general, this is a perfect podcast for you. In today's episode, we invite Dr. Zhongling Xie to talk about his work and his journey as a graduate student. Zhongling is a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University. He does research on the theory of tropical cyclones, also known as hurricanes. He has a diverse experience in research and has published papers in statistical mechanics, fluid dynamics, and atmospheric science. If you look at his personal website, you will find a section about scientific visualization. You can see a number of interesting 3D visualizations and movies. He has participated in art shows in Princeton and New York City. Welcome to the Scientific Method podcast only. Thank you, Angela. I'm happy to be here. Could you explain your research? I study the physics of tropical cyclones. You may not have heard of tropical cyclones, but you probably have heard of hurricanes on the news, and you probably have seen videos of hurricanes. These are giant rotating clouds that can bring heavy rain and strong winds and cause a lot of damage. My research focuses on some fundamental aspects of tropical cyclones, such as why we have about 90 of them every year, and how this number may change. What motivated you to pursue this research? My research interests have evolved over the years. I did an undergraduate research using statistical mechanics and computer simulations to explain the symmetry and mathematical relationships in fluid dynamics. It was an eye-opening experience, and I figured fluid dynamics is a pretty core research area because it combines physics, math, and computer science, which are my favorite subjects. By the time I applied for grad schools, I was hoping that my PhD would have some societal impact, and that's why I decided to go to an atmospheric science program. And the research method is actually quite similar to fluid dynamics. At the beginning of my PhD, I studied the waves and turbulence in the atmosphere using partial differential equations, and applied. Some of my theoretical findings to explain winter storms, which we all have experienced in the U.S. And the nice thing about doing theoretical research is that you can apply your theory and methods to different phenomena. So, more recently, I've shifted my focus to tropical cyclones, which are just as destructive as winter storms, but even more unpredictable. Can you explain the interdisciplinary and collaborative process of researchers in your field? That's a good question.、Um, it's definitely very interdisciplinary. So I would say I'm on the more theoretical side. I use more math and physics to study how tropical cyclones work in general. But 
there are also people uh, trying to look at the impact of tropical cyclones, like how many tropical cyclones would make a landfall and destroy houses and how much money uh, it's going to cost. So there are people doing this kind of calculation and we will combine our theory to improve tropical cyclone forecast. And they will use the tropical cyclone forecast to estimate the dollar amount. What is the real world data that you work with to validate your models? And what instruments do we have currently to be able to capture the complexity of these large systems? Mm -hmm. I think we're in a pretty good time to study tropical cyclones. Uh, first, because we have satellite observations. There are satellites looking at the Earth every day. So we have a pretty good idea of where tropical cyclones are forming and how they move. And we've had this kind of high quality data for about 40 years. So uh, we have enough tropical cyclone samples to study and to collect good statistics to test our physical theories. Another important tool that became available in recent decades is that um, it's the ability to model tropical cyclones in a computer on a global scale. With this kind of computer models, we can do crazy experiments like uh, making the Earth rotate twice as fast to study how rotation influences tropical cyclones, or we can remove um, lands and to study how tropical cyclones behave if the Earth were completely covered by water. It is impressive to me that researchers like yourself were able to come up with deep intuitions about a system of the complexity and scale as Earth's weather. Can you explain how you were able to develop this intuition? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. The Navier-Stokes equation, which is the differential equation behind fluids, is already difficult to solve. It's one of the learning problems in math. And to use it to study the atmosphere, we also need to consider effects like the radiation from the sun or the condensation of water vapor or the difference between land and ocean, mountain and flat terrain. So it's very complicated. And my approach is to study a range of models that are designed to simulate tropical cyclones with different complexity. You can think of it as we would write down equations for everything that I just mentioned. And this equation would be very difficult to solve, either analytically or by a computer. So we make systematic approximations. When you make a lot of approximations, the equations may become simple to solve and to understand. And on the other hand, um, if you don't make approximations and the four equations may be more similar to the real world. So we have all these kinds of models and we do similar experiments. We change the initial condition or the boundary conditions in the same way. For instance, um, if the tropical cyclones change with temperature in the same way across all models, then we have a high confidence that this is how real tropical cyclones work. It sounds like computation and approximation are very important aspects. Can you comment on how machine learning is used in your field? Machine learning is becoming very popular 
in atmospheric science. And for our purpose, machine learning is useful to summarize data and to make interpolation. We do have more data than traditional methods can manage in some aspects of the atmosphere. For instance, um, there's lots of satellite observations of clouds. So it's nice to have some advanced image recognition techniques to uh, process this kind of data. Also about the technology, since in our experiments, we regularly need to use thousands of CPUs to simulate the, our equations, and that's very expensive. So there are ideas of using neural networks to emulate the fluid equations so that once the neural network is trained, you can evaluate it very quickly. Tsung Ling, you've had a lot of success over the years in publishing high-quality research from as early as your undergraduate years. I was wondering if you can walk us through the ideation process to publication to help us and our listeners emulate your research success. Yeah, it's a learning process. During my undergraduate time, my research was part of a bigger research of a graduate student. And I just focused on doing the computer simulation and some data analysis. But I didn't fully understand the big picture and the science background. But Towards the end of my PhD, I was able to come up with a research topic on my own. And for my latest research, I actually got the idea in a conference where I heard people talking about, we don't have a theory for the number of tropical cyclones, but it's such a fundamental problem. It's relevant to a lot of science questions and real world applications. At the same time, the institution I was at has just finished developing uh, one of the best models to simulate tropical cyclones in global scale. So I just borrowed their models and tried to develop a theory and do experiments to test it. Um, I did a lot of experiments and I look at the solutions, I visualize it. And one day it just struck me that the distribution of tropical cyclones looked like a mathematical function that I can derive using physical laws. So uh, I spent a lot of time connecting the dots in my mind, connecting the pieces of information. And eventually, some of the dots became a storyline, and that became a paper. I love how you were able to pick up on those insights at the conference and listen to what the community was interested in. Were other people working on this problem at the same time? And if so, did you feel any sort of competition between them? Yeah, there were a number of people working on this general topic. But I actually found that a great thing because usually I will have a hypothesis and I will want to set up experiments to test it but it takes a long time to perform the experiments and analyze the results. But if someone else has done it, I can just read their papers. And if their results uh, verifies or disproves my hypothesis, then I can iterate very quickly. So eventually I came up with this theory that unifies some of the existing literature as well as some novel experiments that I did. And yeah, that was pretty exciting. What do you do when you realize your hypothesis is wrong? That happens very often. And I don't know if 
there is a formula to deal with it. My way is pretty much um, to get away from it. There are a lot of days when I came up with a hypothesis, but my data show that it's wrong. It felt like I didn't make any progress that day. Um, even though I learned something is wrong, I didn't discover anything. That could be very frustrating. Um, at the beginning, you mentioned the kind of scientific and artistic visualizations I made. And I did that because in my research, I look at so much fluid data and simulations. So it's actually pretty easy to generate pretty pictures because fluids are beautiful, the atmosphere is beautiful. So uh, even if I didn't come up with a new hypothesis or I didn't verify a hypothesis that day, I made three pretty pictures and that would make me feel happy and make me feel I have some progress. How much of your visualization is based on science and how much of it is based on your artistic expression? That's a great question. I learned so much from doing this kind of scientific and artistic visualization. There are some differences between uh, creating an artistically pleasing image and producing a figure for a paper. For instance, to create the 3D illusion on a 2D computer screen, it helps to draw some shadows. But the colors in a scientific paper mean something. It, um, it means values of your data, so you don't want to mess with it. On the other hand, sometimes it's nice to have some freedom to uh, visualize the data. You can put part of it in the foreground and part of it in the background. And sometimes this can help your brain to make sense of what's going on in your very complicated data set. And this definitely can help generate some scientific hypothesis and intuition. I had a chance to talk to some artists in the art shows that I participated in. And I actually found scientists and artists have a lot in common. We're all pursuing something very spiritually rewarding. It requires a lot of dedication and creativity. On the highest level, it can be hard to understand for a lay person. Like for arts, you can talk about uh, the composition, the technique, the lighting. But you don't need to know all, um, all the art theories in order to appreciate a painting or music or anything. And similarly for science, you don't need to know very advanced math to understand the basic scientific intuition. And you can apply science to your everyday lives. Do you consider yourself a scientist, an artist, or both? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely a scientist by training. But I think scientists can learn a lot from artists. Science is in a way a highly constrained art. It has to satisfy logic and basic physics laws. But creativity is essential for doing good science. So yeah, it's going to be very helpful to learn from other disciplines. I wondered, Tsunling, if you can talk to a younger version of yourself and give them three points of advice for going into the field of research in the graduate lifestyle. That's a good question. What's the three most important things? The first has to be 
you want to find a field that you're interested in. It could be because of the phenomena or because of the methods. Like you can want to do atmospheric science PhD because you are interested in clouds or because you are interested in doing computer simulations. And this field is going to become your area of expertise. You're going to learn a lot about it. And once you go out to talk to people, you can always offer a unique perspective because you know so much about this field. And the second thing is, it's very important to find a good research topic. I know it's a hard thing to do, and personally, I don't think I'm very good at it even at this stage. But I think a good research topic should have two components. One is feasibility. So at the beginning of the PhD, you have the luxury of being able to do a high-risk, high-reward project. You can spend three or four years on it and try to develop something groundbreaking. But towards the end, uh, you'll probably finish a project within one or two years. And you'll probably want to work on a topic that your lab or your institution has the resource and equipment to support it. And also, you want people to care about your research topic. Uh, it could be a popular topic, but that also means you'll have a lot of competition. Or it could be um, something very fundamental in the field so that uh, once you work out this fundamental theory, it can be applied to many problems. And lastly, it's important to have a support network. A PhD, by definition, is something that you do on your own, and you are the only person doing this research topic, so it can feel lonely. It's nice to have fellow graduate students to kind of suffer with you. 90% uh, of your hypotheses are going to be wrong, and 90% of your experiments are not going to work. Um, it's also nice to have friends and family who can give you some emotional support. It's also nice to have some side interests or side projects, so you have something else to focus on when the research doesn't work. I think everyone in grad school that I know of has developed new interests. Some people started learning rock climbing, and some people started doing improv. I think grad school is a very flexible period of time. You get to manage your own progress, and you manage your own lives. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tsun Ling. The conversations really became such a fantastic pleasure to have, and I look forward to following your work and art into the future. Thank you, Mitch, and thank you, Angela. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's it for this week's episode of the Scientific Method Podcast. We hope you learned something from this week's guest. If you have a researcher in mind you'd like us to interview, please leave us a comment below. I'm Angela Chen. And I'm Mitch Fogelson. Thanks for listening.